if you ever want, want to know how I know to get up, John has this little twitch that he uses. But this morning we were joking about the fact that we're going to kind of change our practice. So if you see us doing this, it's like, get up here now. So, well, good morning to each and every one of you, to especially to those of you who have arrived since we began the service. It's always kind of interesting when we sit in here in the morning and kind of go, is anybody going to show up? We realize there's a lot of different transportation issues, and it's sometimes very hard to get out in the morning and stuff. So we're just glad that you're here, and I'm glad that you're here to hear the Word of God. It is, a, it is I know it's always a joy, but it is a privilege to be in Scripture. And so um, today's text comes from Luke chapter 12. And before I go into it, I want to give some uh, context for it. Uh, we've been doing the lectionary, calling this extraordinary uh, text for ordinary times. I don't know where the ordinary times are, but they're kind of extraordinary too. Um, but, we're, uh, but we're dealing with uh, texts from using the lectionary, which um, I won't go into it, but they are passages that are chosen by the church uh, throughout history to lead us through uh, the scriptures. And uh, mine is Luke 12, and Tori preached on Luke 14. But that's because we did some, um, a little uh, whack-a-mole or jumping around. Tom was one week, and then we switched and all this kind of stuff. So I'm in Luke 12 today, and here's what it's about. This passage is often called the travel narrative in Luke. It is a key portion of, his, of the gospel. Jesus basically is headed towards Jerusalem with his disciples. And this is an account of that journey. It begins in chapter 9, actually. On this journey, large crowds will gather around Jesus. They shout out questions, things like, Hey, my brother won't divide the inheritance with me. Would you please decide for me, good teacher? Things like that. They're asking questions. And Jesus answers some of them. But the crowds are around, but then the, the disciples are with Jesus closer in, kind of symbolically reflecting that concentric, the concentric uh, circles that are always seem to be around Jesus, those close in and those uh, out. Uh, on this journey, they have uh, no place to lay their heads, to use a phrase. They're vulnerable and they're exposed. And what Jesus does is he uses this experience to teach them some things about what it's going to be like to be a community in mission with him in, uh, in the future. So you can see that in this journey, Jesus is gathering and shaping a community that will face fear, vulnerability, and betrayal. This journey that Jesus is on with the disciples, of which the crowds are coming around him, is related to a key passage at the beginning of the gospel of Luke, which is in chapter 4. I call that the manifesto of the inauguration of Jesus' mission, when he stands up in the synagogue and he reads from the scroll, which is from Isaiah chapter 61. And I'm going to read it to you because I think it relates it helps us understand the passage we're going to uh, address today. Here are those words. This is what Jesus reads in the synagogue. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the attendant and sits down and then everybody's looking at him. And then he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
Now, interesting in light of today's passage, we'll know that afterward, he didn't get a great reception after church service. They kind of wanted to kill him, which I, I'm not worried about that this morning. So, but here's the anointed call of God on Jesus as, as Jesus heard it from the Spirit through the Holy Scripture. And so here, today's passage, in light of those words, okay, just think of those words, what Jesus is coming to do, and then what Jesus says to the disciples on this journey to Jerusalem. I came to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already ablaze. I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, and son against father. Mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. And mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, the mother-in-law. And he also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you immediately say, it's going to rain. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. That's because they were watching the Weather Channel all the time. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And this is what Jesus is trying to get them to see, the disciples, at least. What is the present time? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord of deliverance, who gives sight to our blind eyes, and who opens our ears that are so deaf, come. Give us of your spirit to release our prejudice and fear, and receive today's manna to sustain our journey with you. Amen. I like the NRSV that translated Jesus saying, I'm under great restraint. My goodness, he's saying, I'm stressed to the max. That's what he's saying. He's not saying, you know, and, and, and when we think of Jesus, I, I don't immediately think of Jesus that way. Like Jesus losing it and melting down in public. Like, do you ever think about that? Oh, no, of course. He was levitating all the time through problems, right? We tend not to think of the humanity of Jesus. Tom spoke last week of the divinity of Jesus, but we tend not to also connect that with the humanity of Jesus. Now, how many of you used the word stress this week? And those of you who don't want to raise your hand but did. No, just kidding. <laughs> stress is what we are about. There is a lot of conflict in our lives. Well, there was for Jesus too. And for us to kind of paint a picture that Jesus lived a stress-free life as if somehow that is the goal that we want. Of course, we do want to reduce our stress. But Jesus stressed, yes. 
He is distressed. In fact, the word means he's pressed together and at the same time pulled apart. Pressed together by two things and pulled apart by two things. And how often many times our distress often feels like that. It's like I've got this thing and then I got this thing and then they're pushing up against me. And then I got this thing and I got this thing and they're pulling me apart. Whatever those things are, Jesus is distressed. And I think it's important to understand that these words are coming out of that place. But that doesn't mean they're, they're, they're imprecise or they're wrong. It just means they're coming out of that place. Now, what do we mean by this? Well, I was looking at some commentaries, and Diane Chen, who is a professor of New Testament at uh, Palmer Theological Seminary, says in her commentary on Luke these things, because I think it helps us understand about this. She says it's about recognizing a crisis, meaning there's a crisis on the horizon. Jesus sees it with the eyes of his heart that this is coming. She says that the image of fire that Jesus uses is a common Old Testament metaphor for divine judgment, burning away what is wrong, what is unjust, what is godless. As God's agent of salvation, Jesus brings a fire of judgment that is tied to the baptism with which he is to be baptized. Jesus uh, uh, is speaking neither of his baptism by John nor the rite of Christian baptism, which we see in the book of Acts and that we perform here. It's related, but it's not the same. But what she says is it's the baptism of his impending death. He sees it. What's amazing to me, what's amazing to me is how when you look at all the world's religions, Jesus, like Buddha, could have walked, learned, enlightened, walked away, and taught for years why walk into this conflagration of fire? That's just not to put down Buddhism, obviously, at all. But what it is to say is, we see a huge difference in the figure of Jesus. He's willing to walk towards that which will bring his own death. <laughs> I like Diane Chen's comment in her commentary. She says, no wonder Jesus' tone betrays a desire to be on one side of this dreadful fate that awaits him. When usually something is so difficult on the horizon, it's like, can we please get it over with now? But Jesus appears agitated, turns to the disciples, and he says to them, do you think that I have come to bring peace on the earth? No, 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 he's saying no. I tell you, I come to bring division. This is what makes this text so unsettling. Jesus feeling his distress, also feels the need at this point to correct misperceptions and misunderstandings about the mission itself. Maybe Jesus sensed that the disciples had the same kind of expectations that the pilgrims who went annually to Jerusalem, on, who sang the hymns of the Songs of Ascent, which are 120 to I think like 133, something like that, that that was what was on their mind. Because in those Psalms, we hear things like this. Um, to seek the peace of Jerusalem. We're here to seek peace and pursue it as the life of a faithful follower of God. But also Jesus might be reminding them and be reminded of this one little phrase in Psalm 20, 120 that says, when I, am when I am for peace, they are for war. Jesus is reminding them and us to stay awake and be vigilant. 
Then he gives this example, and I just want to draw your attention to the flowers on the table this morning. You will see that there is a set of three here and a set of two. And Kay Wolf designed that to show a house divided. And Jesus uses this image of a house divided, three against two, two against three, in order to tell, us some, tell the disciples something and, and something of them. And I thought a way in which to, to bring this out would be to kind of give it some kind of practical picture. <clears throat> if you notice in this example that Jesus uses, he's alluding to words uh, from the prophet Malachi, which they have, would have understood. In a situation where the closest of family relationships are divided uh, because of, 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 of the will or the word of God. Jesus refers to a family and a family that becomes deeply divided over some kind of decision. So I'm going to imagine this as what he might have had in mind. That he's referring to a decision that has been made, possibly at the, by the father, which is unacceptable. And as each member of the unacceptable to the son, and then as each member of the family enters into the disagreement, sides begin to be taken. And the heat of the argument goes up. Not like you've never experienced that at Thanksgiving at your home, right? Some of us know what that's like. Um, dramatic, but not necessarily also helpful. But um, he... I don't think that, number one, I don't think that the conflict could be seen about, like, did somebody burn the dinner or somebody slacking on their chores at home? That this is something he's really speaking of that is uh, conflictual. So, what if the father, the disagreement occurs because the father tells the son that he wants to take some of their wealth, which includes the son's inheritance, wealth that is also the security for the family's future, and divide it up and give a significant part to a relative who has fallen on hard times, their relatives who need release from debts that cannot be repaid, that have enslaved the family, that have placed their relatives, and they want to place their relatives back on a firm footing. And the disagreement, Father, what are you, what are you thinking of? You, you, you're crazy. We need that money for the future. And then mom enters into the, into the game, right? And then the, you know, just take it on, boom, boom, boom. Two multiplied against three, the image gives the idea of increased conflict through the disagreement continues to go on and on and on. But the disagreement is about something that might be a very good, just thing to do. Jesus is saying that if you take up with him and his mission of deliverance, you will not have peaceful agreement but division. Whether one understands division as a consequence or an intention, I don't know. I tend to think it's a consequence of making peace. The division comes because there's a vision of peace that others don't agree with is proper and right uh, in the will of God. I think Jesus is also saying that um, he's getting them to understand that in the context of doing the mission, think of Luke 4, right, that you may lose your name. You may lose your honor. You may be shamed. You may lose your job. You may lose a close friendship. People will put you in categories simply to dismiss you. You are too spiritual. You're too political. You're not spiritual enough. You're not political enough, right? You get where I'm going with this. That the, that the mission becomes a, a, a place, a site of disagreement because we want to do the right thing, but oftentimes we're caught up in our own desires and not listening to the will of God. That may be it. 
But I was thinking, what do these words have to say to, to me, to, to us? And it was, uh, it was an unsettling word that I heard. But this is what I heard. Do not fear the conflict that goes with following me in my mission. As hard as it might be, step into it. That's what I heard. Do not fear the conflict that goes with following me in my mission. As hard as that might be, step into it. Do not fear the conflict as hard as that might be. Now, what I want to do is, as I kind of take this down the road to the, to the end, or at least the end of the journey of this sermon, hopefully it's not going to end in flames, but is, is this. I think that there's one thing about American Christianity that is really an impediment to, 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 to facing this very thing of stepping into conflict, the conflict that surrounds mission. I'm not just talking about any conflict, but the conflicts that we sometimes have in our meetings, right? The conflicts that we sometimes have with our community, depending on what we're trying to do or not trying to do, is not to fear those things. At the beginning of chapter 12, Jesus says, of first importance, disciples, beware or on guard for the yeast of the Pharisees. Okay, they were the group really committed to, Jesus, or committed to the scriptures, committed to religious purity, conservatism, all that kind of stuff. Um, but he says, beware. Within them is a yeast. It's, it's, a, it's a hypocrisy. It's a mask, right? It's an inauthentic way. Is that there's a, there's a presentation of doing the will of God, but deep down, it's only a selective doing of the will of God. It's not really the full doing of the will of God. So Jesus is... is raising a question, which I've asked myself, is what is the yeast of our Christianity? L let's not assume that, that we don't have a yeast problem. Pardon the phrase. It may even be a bad phrase. But, but let's not assume that we don't have that problem. Because I tend to assume, grew up with the idea, somehow American Christianity, as it is expressed in all of its denominational expressions, somehow has some kind of right to, to rightness about things, right? So I thought about this. I thought about how the yeast that I've grown up with and had to deal with, that I see the churches had to deal with in America, and this has its both progressive expressions and its more conservative expressions, but it tends to lean more towards the, what would be called the conservative side, is this, that we limit the gospel and we call it uh, but we, we limit it, but we expand it at the same time. Like, like yeast goes into, into dough. Um, we give it expansion, but there's no extra substance, right? So it's called the gospel of inner peace. Is that what we want is freedom from our guilt and forgiveness. And the idea that our troubles and our sufferings will eventually, God will take them away from us. Now, what I'm saying I'm not against, right? Okay, we prayed our confession prayer up here, everything, so I'm not, not against that. But in 1953, Billy Graham, God bless his soul and his family, wrote a book called Peace with God. It's still in print. It's been translated into 50 languages around the world and has sold millions and millions of copies. I would call that a slightly influential book. In that book, there is this vision of a, of a gospel 
that is, simp- that, that, is, that is brought to the point where it's primarily about my peace and your peace with God. Again, not arguing against that. But when that understanding of the gospel cuts away a significant piece of the mission of Jesus that will lead to conflict and will disturb your inner peace. Because I'm going to tell you, if you seek to follow Jesus all the way with Jesus, your inner peace will be disturbed. And it won't be because of guilt, and it won't be because if you're not forgiven. It will be because you are running up against the principalities and powers, and you're seeking to expose them. And that will take away your inner peace. But here's the thing about the, the message of Jesus and the mission of Jesus, is that I think that Jesus was drawing the disciples to a place of not just inner peace, but deeper peace. And that is a peace that can only be discovered in the midst of trial and conflict with the poor and the needy. Do you realize, folks, that many people who are poor and needy in our world, and some may be sitting here, so I don't assume that we're all in that cl- uh, that not in that class, but they don't have the luxury to worry about inner peace. They don't have the luxury to think about spiritual inner peace. I can go to my retreats. I can do my spiritual practices. I can do all of those things. But that is only a piece of the mission. My spiritual development and your spiritual development is actually tied to the way in which we are dealing and addressing and caring for the poor and the oppressed. And that is a good, I tend not to see that as good news. I see that as a byproduct of the spiritual growth that I'm undergoing, or we're undergoing. But in reality, my spiritual growth is tied to that out there. But that's going to bring conflict. That's when we back out. Jesus gives, us, gives the disciples two reassurances, and I want to hold on to this today before you. He said, first of all, watch creation. Go out and be a part of creation. Specifically, watch the birds Put your eye on the birds. Watch how they're cared for. Don't just be in creation. Learn the wisdom of creation. I was watching a bird this week. It's just sitting on a, on a pole. For 15 minutes, I just watched that bird. What was going on? Here's what was going on. Could say it was nothing. But the bird was cleaning him or herself. And that would shake Shake's tail or whatever like that. Kind of like trying to dance. I don't know. But then, whatever that bird did to take care of themselves was immediately translated into looking outward. What was going on? What's going on? My eyes, keeping the eyes open. Predators? Or food? Or whatever. I don't know. But being in creation... Jesus is directing the disciples to say, and to us, that as I took care of creation, I will be taking care of you. And I wonder, for those of us who are actively minded in terms of expressing the gospel and seeking to bring change in the world, how important it is to live contemplatively in creation. Our being separated from from the nature and the rhythm of creation is, is a problem, isn't it? Because we are not so close to those lessons that we can be learning. The second reassurance that Jesus gives the disciples is that you will get the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit will do is it will give you wisdom and courage. There's an interesting thing in Luke chapter 12. Jesus says, 
when you're taken in front of authorities for what you're trying to do in my name, don't think about what you're going to say. Well, that would be for us in Berkeley or, you know, I mean, it's like, are you serious? No PowerPoint? Right? No, no figuring it out? But it's that vulnerability that we are called to that actually enables us to avail ourselves of a power that's greater than ourselves that wishes to teach us something and give us something in the midst of vulnerability when we're doing it with other, for, the, for others. So I encourage us to get close to creation, listen to the birds, but also to know that we're going to be in situations if we step out with the mission with Jesus where we're going to be vulnerable and we're going to need the Holy Spirit. And there may not be a sense of reassurance until we're in the midst of the conflict. Jesus is saying, I just didn't come to bring peace. But what we're doing is going to bring division and conflict. Get ready for it. Be ready for it. I want to end, the, end, end my message um, with a quote. Um, and I, but actually, I, I'm going to just do something I've never done in a sermon. I want to say a word of gratitude to someone who's passed away. And I want to express my deep gratitude to uh, one of our great Presbyterian ministers who passed away a couple weeks ago. Frederick Buechner was a deep influence, not only on my life, but on many, many, many pastors' lives and preachers. An incredible preacher, great writer. I named my second son after one of his novels, Brendan, because I, I, I enjoyed his work so much. He passed away on August 15th at the age of 96. And I wanted to end this sermon. John Holland sent me a text that day, and he's like, hey, the guy is gone, you know? Only as John Holland knows how to say, right? Was John here today? No, I guess not. But, um, and Julie's here, though. <laughs> but I just started shedding some tears of gratitude and joy. But this is what Binkner said, and you probably heard this quote before. Your vocation in life is where your greatest joy meets the world's greatest need. Your vocation in life in Jesus is where your greatest joy meets the world's greatest need. Our vocation as a church in Jesus, in our church life, is where our greatest joy meets the world's greatest need. And I would add that this very joy of God is what enables us not to fear the conflict and the division that goes with following Jesus. A joy that says, as hard as it might be, I will step into it. May these words grow and prosper in us as we let the words of Jesus continue to unsettle us. Amen.